I invite you to turn in the Gospel of John to John chapter 6. Last week we considered the miracle as Christ broke the bread and fed the 5,000 men plus presumably women and children. And then Christ begins to speak to that. It seems that he is in Capernaum at the synagogue as we discover in verse 59, but we won't read that far tonight. I'd like to read up to through verse 40 this evening, the first 40 verses of John chapter 6, and taking as our sermon text verse 25 through 40. Begin at John 6 at verse 1, as we hear God's holy word. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, Truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the following day, When the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
You seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have Come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. God's holy word, we end our scripture reading there. Should we turn to God in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for a Savior who opens that word to our hearts and gives us the faith to believe. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your word in your church. We pray you'd bless it to us this evening. We pray, Lord, for your blessing also upon our Sunday school and catechism classes upon our Bible studies and our times of meeting together around your word. We pray that your word would fill your people and that in your word we would see the one who's certified by you as the agent of our salvation. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray, God. Hear us and help us. Amen. Well, people of God, last time we looked at one of Jesus' most famous miracles, that of feeding the 5,000. It's in all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now tonight we begin to look at one of Jesus' most famous sermons, the sermon about bread. Christ, who miraculously supplied bread, now speaks about bread, and he has our attention, doesn't he? We like bread. We like bread. When Joy and I got married and moved into the village of Crete, Illinois, we got a knock on the door. And uh, a couple of young people standing on the porch, and they were holding out to us a loaf of bread. This apparently was the custom of the big Lutheran church in town. When somebody moved into town, they would do this, and we brought it into our house. It was a homemade loaf of bread, 
And nicely attached to it were the words of John 6, I am the bread of life, and the invitation to come to church. It's actually quite beautifully done. Homemade loaf of bread, who wouldn't love that? And the invitation to come to church and to hear the one who is the bread of life, our Lord Jesus. Bread gets our attention. Bread connects with us. Jesus knows he's, he's speaking to people who have stomachs. And bread is the essential of life. All the more in Jesus' day, right? We have such a variety of foods. But to live in a culture like Christ, bread is the staple, right? You don't live without bread. And we recognize that. We have sayings that maybe are growing, going out of custom now. But, you know, the kind of sayings like, that's our bread and butter. Or speaking about being in bread lines, somebody who's destitute. Or talking about the price of bread. Bread matters to us. A Russian proverb puts it like this, with a piece of bread in your hand, you'll find paradise under a pine tree. Bread. If you've got bread, you've got life. If you've got bread, you can live. But now Jesus is saying, physical bread is not enough. You won't live. You can't live by that kind of bread alone. You need, you need the true bread. You need me, the God who brings you salvation. And so tonight, the Lord Jesus now is, is graciously urging people to find life in himself, to find the life they need, eternal life in himself. The first thing we see here is Christ urging them to distinguish two kinds of, of bread. That's the first thing that's going on here. Christ, who fed the 5,000, they wanted to make him king, and Jesus withdrew from them. And the disciples had gotten into a boat and gone back across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was up on the mountain by himself. Remember at night he came walking across the water and he got in the boat with his disciples, came to the other side. And now the next day the people wake up and there's no Jesus, there's no disciples. And so they decide to cross back over the Sea of Galilee. And they too come to Capernaum. And they come to Jesus now as they find him in Capernaum with this question at verse 25. Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? And, and maybe... They're just a bit curious, wondering, suspecting maybe something miraculous had happened. And would they like to hear about this miracle too? How did he get here? Or more probably, maybe, I'm not sure, I guess, but equally likely, they might actually be a bit perturbed here. They might be saying, how is this? You feed us, we want to make you king, and now you play hard to get. You don't tell us where you're going, what's going on. But whatever the, the whole nature of their question here, Jesus goes to the heart of the matter when he says in verse 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You see, when Jesus turned five loaves into food for 5,000 and more, that was exciting to them. Who wouldn't love a man who could make a meal for thousands out of a, out of a boy's lunch? He would make a magnificent king, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? Many people today still seek Jesus for what can be given to them. Why are health and wealth preachers who preach this prosperity gospel so popular today with stadiums full of people? But because they're preaching this idea, if you just believe on Jesus, you'll be rich, you'll be healthy, all will go well with you. Or in times and countries where there's a state church, an established religion, people often join the church because then they'll be respected, then they can run for political office, then they'll be liked by people. 
I read of a missionary couple in Africa, served for years in Africa, and they were frustrated because the other missionaries were giving away all kinds of things, and so the people they were serving were saying, why don't you give us more stuff? Maybe we don't want to hang around here. Missionaries have often used the language of rice Christians to describe those who come to church as long as they're getting the goods, the bread. But it's true in America, too. Many people come looking for a church for what reason? Maybe they want to be entertained. Maybe they want to find friends. Maybe they want advice about their finances. Maybe they want programs for their children. Maybe they want opportunity to meet a guy who's not addicted to drugs. Many people come not for Christ, Jesus, to know the forgiveness of sins, but for other reasons. And the problem was present here. And Jesus, who knows all things and sees all things, and sees all these people seeking him, he sees right through them and says, you're not really seeking me. You want a bread maker. You want a good economy. But you don't recognize in the miracle that you saw when I broke bread and fed the thousands, you don't see what it's really about, that it reveals me, it authenticates me as the Savior God has given from heaven. You want not a Savior, but a supplier of bread. Their attention and enthusiasm was aroused by the loves, but they don't seek the true and lasting bread, to know God, communion with God, fellowship with God. They seek only the earthly and the perishable. And so Christ says to them in verse 27, don't labor for the the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus warns about laboring for bread, that perishes. We all have to reckon with that, don't we? We have to ask, what am I working for in life? What am I laboring for? What am I longing for? What am I pursuing? And what's its expiration date? Are the things that I'm investing in going to last 10 years? 100 years? It's easy, isn't it? to get lost in the things of this world. We, we check the expiration date on milk and bread when we buy it in the store, but, but do we check the expiration date on the things that our hearts long for and the things that we invest all kinds of time and energy in? What's the shelf life? But it's easy to get captivated, isn't it? Not only by sinful things, but even the good things God gives us. And he gives us so many good things, Right? that we turn into ultimate things, whether it be food or marriage, children, jobs or health. These are blessings to be enjoyed for which we give thanks, or books or music or art or recreation or vacation or a house or technological gadgets or sports or fitness or business success, but they're not the ultimate thing. And when we turn these good things into the ultimate thing, as if this is our bread, our sustenance, our life, then we forget that these things will perish. We expect too much of the things of the earth. We end up disappointed and frustrated. 
And the people here, their problem is they come to Jesus, they want, they want this Jesus according to their own imaginations. They want him to bring them paradise on earth. And Christ is saying it doesn't work that way. Things of this earth will never truly satisfy you. Only communion with God, only knowing God will satisfy you. Remember Isaiah the prophet said, why do you spend your money on what is not bread, right? Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? That is a cutting question, isn't it? And we struggle with it. Hunger and thirst that Jesus speak of, they suggest longings and cravings. Everybody in the world has longings and cravings and desires to be satisfied, to be happy, to have security, to have peace. But when we cling to God's substitutes as the thing to fill those cravings, then we are self-deceived. Don't labor for the food which perishes. Jesus is not suggesting that we don't have spiritual needs. Or rather physical needs, but he's suggesting that the greatest need is spiritual. Communion with God. Remember those words of C.S. Lewis when he suggests that we are far too easily pleased. Remember those words? C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory writes, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Augustine, early church father, said it right, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are unsatisfied until we find our satisfaction in God. Psalm 16 says, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Psalmist says in Psalm 63 that my heart longs for you, I, I look for you, I cry out for you in this weary land. God in his glory is the only thing that can fill our hearts. God in his eternal glory, God and his glorious love, that he should love us, that he should bring us into communion with himself, that he should forgive our sins and give himself to us. That's the only thing that can satisfy our hearts that were created by God and for God. And so true understanding in this world never comes until we we have this profound dissatisfaction with, with our spiritual condition. Until we're brought by the Spirit and the Word to say, I'm hungry, I'm wasting away, I'm a sinner, I'm outside of God, and that's my great ache and my great void. But to shove into that void, the things of this earth will not do. Now what should grab our attention here is this reality that 
the people Jesus is speaking to are, are people who are actually seeking him in some form. I mean, they went all the way over the Sea of Galilee to seek Jesus, and he fed them there. They've come all the way back across the Sea of Galilee looking for Jesus. If you ask them, are you seeking Jesus, they would say, undoubtedly, we are seeking Jesus. But they're not truly seeking Jesus. They're seeking their own vain imagination of Jesus. Pursuing him according to their own expectations and desires. I wonder how many people in this world say, well, I pray to him. I pray to God. But they're not praying to the God of Scripture. They're not praying to the Christ of the Bible. They're praying to this, to this vague conception of God, what they've imagined God is like. They, they've treated God as the genie in the bottle who, who would give them bread. God, I'm asking for this. Why doesn't he answer me? And God would say, but you're not seeking me. Christ would say, but you're not seeking me as the Christ. I'm not your giant bread maker. And the question tonight is this, what would Jesus say of us as we seek him? We, we come to church. Come out week after week. What are we seeking? can't be some sort of ritual where we secure blessing on our week, where we, by coming here and doing our duties, then God has to make business go well, has to make family go well. That's not Christ. Do we seek God, communion with him? Do we find delight in prayer? It's not always duty, but do we find at times delight to be near to God? Do we, do we read our Bibles in our homes, not just with a sense, I need to do this, this is how I get God's blessing, I need to do this? Or do we ever read our Bibles and say, God, you are beautiful, you're marvelous, I love you, you have so loved me. You see, are we seeking the Lord himself and all of his glory and all of his love and all of his mercies towards us? So Christ is calling us to check the expiration date of the things that we're investing in. And to say, but are you laboring? Are you seeking the bread that lasts for eternity? But then the second thing Christ is doing here is he's calling us to receive that bread, to come and to receive that bread. The response of the crowd seems rather promising at first. They say in verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answers verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe, that you believe in him whom he sent. So in order to be satisfied in God, to know the joys of his glory, you have to believe on Jesus. That's the answer. And if you say, why should I believe on Jesus? Jesus says at the end of verse 27, because God the Father has set his seal on him. In other words, because because the Son is the authorized agent. He's been sent by the Father to give salvation. Eternal life is at his disposal. If you had come to America and you're trying to get citizenship, would you be comforted if you met a guy in a back alley who says, I think I can help you? Or would you prefer that there's an authorized agent of immigration who says to you, I will get you citizenship? Christ is the authorized agent. He's sent by God to give us salvation. 
And the Jews, they, they begin to understand now that Christ is saying that he's more than just physical bread, but he's something greater. And then they say, well, what sign then? What sign do we have that, that you can do this? I mean, that was nice. You fed one meal. But, you know, in the wilderness, we had manna for 40 years for 2 million people. Are you greater than Moses? How can we entrust ourselves to you? Jesus says that Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. When Jesus says he's the true bread, he's not saying in the wilderness you got false bread and now you get the true bread. He's saying in the wilderness you got a type or a symbol, a picture. And now you get the reality, right? If I hold up a picture of Bob, I say, that's Bob. That's one thing. But when Bob walks in, we say, that's the real Bob, right? Picture, reality. Type, fulfillment. That man in the wilderness was, was a sign, wasn't it? It was fed their bodies, but it pointed to the true bread that would come from heaven, the one who would give not life in this world, but everlasting life. And that's what Jesus is. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, verse 33. And the people say, Lord, give us this bread always. They're attracted to the thought of bread but they don't understand what he's saying when he says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Now, that's the first of, of seven such statements in this gospel according to John, right? The seven I am statements where Christ will make these magnificent declarations. I am the bread of life. And then chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And then in chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. And again in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. And chapter 15, I am the true vine. And all of those are echoing in a way, aren't they? The very words that God spoke to Moses. I am who I am. And the Jews begin to catch on that when Christ keeps saying, I am, that he is saying, I'm God. I'm God. I am the covenant Lord. And here he's proclaiming, I am the bread of life. He takes that to himself exclusively. I'm not the bread of life. You're not the bread of life. Our neighbor's not the bread of life. Our job is not the bread of life. Our children are not the bread of life. Christ is the bread that gives life. The world is in search of bread. Right? Wars are fought over bread. Everybody wants satisfaction. Everybody wants comfort. Everybody wants happiness. Everybody wants money. And Christ says, I'm the only one who can bring you that deepest longing of your heart to know God. Isn't it a blessing to be a Christian? We live in a world tonight where people are in search, frantic search for something to fill up their heart. Everybody wants happiness. And yet we sing that hymn of Newton, 
Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Can you say that tonight? My lasting treasure is Jesus Christ. To be loved by him, to have the forgiveness of all of my sins, to know that he watches over me, he cares for me, he has a future for me, that I'm going to see God in his glory and my heart's going to be satisfied with pleasures forevermore. You know, there's lots of good reasons for coming to an evening worship service. Right? We can come to a second service, come a second time on the Lord's Day because we know God's promised to use his word, we want him to work in us, we could come for a second service because our elders call us to come and there are spiritual guardians. But the greatest reason, isn't the greatest reason to come to a second service on the Lord's Day is to be able to say, I can't get enough of him. I can't get enough of him. This is my Lord. This is my life. This is my bread. Show me Jesus. How do we come to Jesus? This is the work of God that you believe in him. Verse 29, and then verse 35, he who believes in me, he who comes to me. To receive Jesus, we don't have to live up to a certain standard. We don't get Jesus when we finally have done enough good things, we've finally overcome enough sin, we finally serve for enough hours in his kingdom. All you have to do is come to Christ in faith, saying, I'm a poor and needy sinner. You are the God-appointed Savior. I will trust in you. I will entrust myself to you. You have to be open to what God gives and does through his Son. That's what it means to believe on him, to have confidence that in Christ is everything I need. But how sad it is in verse 36, Jesus has to say to these Jews, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Stand next to me geographically. You've seen my miracle. You stand before me, but you won't accept me as more than a bread maker. You won't accept me as the Son of God who's come down to give you fellowship with the Lord through forgiveness of sins. You haven't recognized my true identity. You haven't recognized my mission. Come to me. Believe on me. Well, that's impossible for us to do, isn't it? We can't trust in Jesus. We can't come to him of ourselves. Naturally, our hearts are darkened. We can't see clearly. We can't accept who he is. But notice certainly tonight that Christ promises that the Father will draw some to himself. Notice the third point here, that if we eat of this Christ by the power of God, we will live Jesus says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There are many who just can't see Christ for who he is. There are many who refuse to believe on Jesus. There are many who cannot bring themselves to confess that I am spiritually destitute. I am a poor beggar. I have nothing. I need everything from you. But there are some who will come. The ones the Father has chosen, the ones he gives to Christ, he will draw them. He will bring them to Christ. 
In these words, all the Father gives me will come to me. We see the great union of, of the Son and the Father, right? They're not on opposite teams here doing two different things, but the, the mission and the ministry are one and the same, the Father and the Son. And Jesus gives this remarkable promise in verse 37, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. If you come to me, you won't be rejected. I won't throw you out. We might struggle with that at times. You know, who am I to come to Christ? Is he really going to give me the Father and all of his glory and love? Does he know what I've done? Does he know the sins I've committed? Christ says, you won't be cast out if you come to me. I'll never abandon you. I'll never deny you. That's not something to take lightly. We know that Jesus has threatened that there'll be some he will cast out, right? Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But there's a different kind of people who don't take security in their own acts and what they've done for the Lord. There's a people who have a broken heart, like King David, who stole the man's wife, who killed the man, and who prays in Psalm 51, do not cast me away from your presence, O Lord. Do not cast me away from your presence, O Lord. And Christ Jesus says, I won't. I won't cast you away from me. How can he promise us that? Because he's the one who was cast away. On the cross, he was forsaken. He was cast into outer darkness so that we could be forever brought into the light of God. And so David could sing in Psalm 51, A broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. Broken heart. So we come to Christ saying, I need you. I'm a sinner and I need you. And he says, as you come to me, I won't drive you away. I won't cast you out. You'll be mine forever. And the reason that Christ will receive and not reject those who come to him is not because he's a gentler and milder Savior than the Father in heaven. Some have, you know, sort of thought that. Maybe you've thought that at times in your life that Jesus, he's all loving and kindness, but the Father, I'm not so sure about him. He seems a little bit angry. But Jesus says in verse 38, I have not, excuse me, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. A savior for humanity to bring sinners into the presence of God and give them the glories and joy of heaven. This isn't just Jesus' idea and he tries to talk the Father into it. The Son of God has come. Christ has come to do the will of the Father. The Father and the Son are one in this. Christ is not acting by his own authority, but he has come of the Father. And this finally then is the promise, verse 39 and 40. We'll end here. 39 and 40. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. What a promise, what a glorious promise, that for all who believe on Jesus, they have everlasting life. Already now we have life with God, but it's a life that will never end. On the day of Christ's coming, he will raise our bodies from the dead. The moment of death, he will lift us up to be with God. Always we shall be with the Lord to see God and to be satisfied in the glories and joy of our God. This is eternal life, to know God through Jesus Christ, his Son. What bread do you labor for tonight? What bread do you pursue? What bread do you hunger for? May we hunger for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The one who died for our sins, who arose for our justification, who sent us his spirit, who's coming again to bring us to God's right hand and pleasures forevermore. May we not be those who are far too easily pleased, but may we have strong desires for the only glory that can satisfy us, God himself. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the word of life, the bread of life, our Lord Jesus. God, we confess we have labored for many things that don't satisfy, and we have spent ourselves, and we have been pursuing things, Lord, that in the end will not last. We pray, God, that we'd pursue you with all of our hearts, that we'd run to our Lord Jesus and know the joy of forgiveness and of fellowship with you. And as we are walking in Christ, then help us to know how to use all the things of this world, rejoicing in your gifts and being thankful, but using them always in view of the day of Christ's appearing. In his name we pray, amen.